0: It used to be that cities were seen as destroyers of nature, the despoiler of all that was fair, flowered, and green. The song, They Pave Paradise and Put Up a Parking Lot, summed up that viewpoint pretty well. Nature and city were the odd couple, constantly quarreling, going together about as well as Tabasco and ice cream. And in that relationship, for a long time, the momentum was on the side of the city, with nature becoming its doormat. But lately, cities have become places where nature is consciously being brought back in as an equal partner. Today's guest embodies that movement, someone who can show us how the world, and particularly how cities, are transforming. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Riddell.
1: I'm Jerry Edelman, I'm president and CEO of Open Lands, which is a regional land conservation organization based in Chicago and working in this three-state metro area at the southern shore of Lake Michigan.
0: Full disclosure, Jerry used to be my boss. He is someone who shaped my own thinking about nature and cities because he's both an amazing leader and he had such an original take on these issues. He continues to be incredibly innovative in his approach to cities, and to protecting nature in and around cities. Jerry, how long have you been working at Open Lands?
1: This is my 31st year as the president and CEO, and was involved with them earlier on a special project, and then left and founded an organization and ultimately came back to Open Lands.
0: Can you talk to us a little bit about why it is that cities around the world located where they are. What is the relationship of cities and nature at its most elemental?
1: For millennia, cities developed where you had the natural wealth and richness that could support a population. Cities couldn't exist without a rich natural resource base. You need soils for food, for agriculture, forests for wood, timber, fuel, but most importantly, access. And so water is terribly important for transportation, for commerce, for movement in general. So most of the great cities of the world were located on waterways along oceans and lakes because it had the resources that could sustain a concentrated population. The reason they were there in the first place was because of nature, was because of those great resources.
0: So cities' origins, where they were initially established, were dictated by nature. How has that changed, and what goes into the making and the sustaining of a successful city today?
1: A great city is a combination of people and place. Great spaces, great architecture, great institutions are very important. But human services and quality of life, the unique character of a community, is also critical and the values then that are represented by those communities. Are they inclusive? Do people feel welcome? Do they feel part of a bigger whole? Those are all aspects of the formula of a great city.
0: I had the honor of working with you at Open Lands in the 1990s. And one of the reasons I wanted to work there in the first place was because it seemed to me like Open Lands saw the mission of saving nature differently from other environmental groups which back then could sometimes seem like they wanted to keep people out of nature, out of natural areas, as if people were inherently bad for nature.
1: People have always been central to the mission of Open Lands. It's it's very much focused on social justice, social equity, as much as it is on quality natural systems. It's both.
0: Why is that, do you think?
1: Open Lands is an unusual conservation organization in terms of its history. We were formed in 1963, kind of the birth of the modern environmental movement, uh, and we were a project of the Welfare Council of Metropolitan Chicago.
0: What do they mean by welfare?
1: Well-being in you know, health, education, jobs, the economy, but there was no voice for public open space, and so a group of people came together and said, you know, we're losing our prairies and our wetlands and natural areas. And so many of our neighborhoods are inadequate in terms of park space. A number of the founders were involved in fresh air camps, getting youth out into nature from inner city neighborhoods.
0: One of the things that I've been thinking about in Chicago is that in other parts of our lives, a lot of things are being very rapidly diminished. But in Chicago, my perception is over the time that I've lived here that nature has become much richer. Is that true or is that my imagination?
1: I personally feel that nature has become richer in the city in the last, let's say, 30 or 40 years.
0: And why is that?
1: Part of it is public policy and trying to bring expertise to the city to help them think through how they can be better stewards, how development. And uh, retrofitting of buildings and, and sites in the city can be more friendly to nature.
0: Let's pull back to a larger frame and talk about what open lands and urban planners call green infrastructure. What does that mean and how does that concept help us see the city more clearly?
1: Green infrastructure is the natural world. It's our trees, it's our open spaces, it's our farmland, our waterways natural resources, whereas gray infrastructure is the built environment. It's buildings, it's roads, it's utilities, and so these coexist. But often we don't focus on the huge value that the green side of the equation
0: brings. There's just a natural tendency to think that the green infrastructure just happens on its own.
1: And it doesn't. It's all intentional.
0: Especially in an urban environment. Totally.
1: Cities often have destroyed so much of the original landscape. So the challenge is how to bring it back, how to bring nature and functioning natural systems back into the fabric of urban life.
0: Nature doesn't thrive in cities by accident just because we didn't happen to mess with it.
1: In some cases, there are some wonderful pockets of biodiversity because they were left alone, a ravine, an area that was cut off and fenced because industry was using the property, edges of railroads where prairies survived, those things are remnants. But when you start thinking holistically at a landscape scale, it really requires restoration, reintroduction, stewardship, caring for that in a very conscious way.
0: And the same kind of creativity and ingenuity that goes to other parts of urban planning.
1: The whole field of restoration ecology The Chicago region has been a pioneer, certainly in North America, in that bringing back our prairies, our wetlands, our natural areas, and understanding what's required to do that, both the science, also the citizen stewardship, the volunteerism is so key. The Chicago region has been a pioneer, certainly in North America. It's a discipline and a science and an approach that needs its own focus and resources, and should not just be seen as something that happens on the side. It's central to the well-being of of our places.
0: And can I also say it's fun and community building?
1: Totally. (laughs) brings people together in wonderful ways, connecting them to place, to their community, in powerful ways where they feel a real sense of ownership because they've been an agent of positive change. And that's hard to do in our society.
0: It is, and it's hard to get together and build a house anymore. I Any think sort of building is so technical at this point that it requires these highly specialized skills, whereas the creation of a garden, the restoration of a prairie, a lot of that comes down to the kind of hand labor that somebody can come out on a Saturday afternoon, be taught it in a relatively short period of time, and make an incredibly positive contribution toward biodiversity.
1: So if you can take some vacant lots and turn them into... A community green space a garden a place to gather and have picnics and social meetings that's very empowering and can change the whole social fabric of the neighborhood it's relatively easy to do I don't want to say it's easy because it's hard work right but very different than addressing large affordable housing complexes or tackling long-term issues related to crime and economic development. So these are things that do bring people together in powerful ways and where they feel they can make a difference.
0: And you and Open Lands have really been at the center of making that happen in a conscious, deliberate way. Let's talk a little bit about that. This is sort of region-centric in that we're talking about the Chicago and metropolitan area, but it's also the case that your projects have had national reverberations.
1: Open Lands was a pioneer in urban conservation. We often had to invent things. We did the first rail-to-trail conversion in the country.
0: Meaning an abandoned railroad, instead of just getting torn up, gets turned into a recreational trail.
1: Correct. The prairie path was the first in the nation. The railroad itself is hiking and biking, but the land adjacent to it has all these marvelous prairie remnants. It's now a national movement, of course. There's the Rails-to-Trails Conservancy, a, a very effective national organization.
0: Open Lands has also been responsible for protecting giant, contiguous tracts of land, more along the lines of conventional land conservation.
1: At one end of the spectrum are these large landscape-scale initiatives like Hackmatack National Wildlife Refuge, which bridges Wisconsin and Illinois. Midewin National Tallgrass Prairie, former Joliet Arsenal, 20,000 acres, the first national tallgrass prairie created by Congress. We launched Friends of the Chicago River, the first group in the city to focus on the river as our forgotten waterfront and not just an open sewer. So a lot of the things that open lands did, they had to invent. We launched what ultimately became the Alliance for the Great Lakes, Lake Michigan Federation. There weren't those initiatives in place. There weren't models that we could look to from other parts of the country.
0: You're unusual in this day and age at having stayed with a single organization and led a single organization for over 30 years. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's been like for you personally to manage to do all these other things, but always keeping this consistent focus on open space and people benefiting from open space and staying in the same job for that length of time what's that like
1: it's all about place for me and community i come from lockport illinois a small community but played a very important role historically in my childhood it was starting to change rust belt issues urban sprawl taking up our farmland and it was very disconcerting i'm a sixth generation resident My great-great-great-grandfather was one of the first permanent white settlers in that area in 1830. So I had this great sense of place. Very deep roots. I was fortunate enough to know great-grandparents, grandparents, this extended family who told me a lot about this place and shared stories that were very powerful and very meaningful. I went away to school, lived in Europe for a while. I really felt that there wasn't much of a future in this town and then started looking differently. And part of that was looking at the regional landscape, the landscape that was adjacent to Lockport and beyond, especially along the route of this historic waterway, the Illinois-Michigan Canal. And I loved the place. And I said, you know, maybe it can reverse itself. It's not all going the wrong way. There are assets here. There are extraordinary resources, both cultural and natural. And so I started working on things and ultimately found open lands and in the end became the president and CEO. I've had opportunities to work elsewhere and to move on. But it's so rewarding to have an impact in this place where I have such deep roots and such strong relationships with family and friends. I care deeply about the future. Open lands is an extraordinary agent of change. I've been so fortunate, so blessed to work with such amazing people, staff and board, our partners, everything we do is done in partnership, that there really wasn't the incentive to leave.
0: What do you see when you look ahead?
1: Climate, most recently, is is something that we've really embraced in a very significant way, something that we never spoke about five or ten years ago. And of course, today we must deal with. And so, what is our role as a conservation organization in that global challenge that's affecting Chicago and our region so directly?
0: So, you've really managed to find something new and fresh in the work.
1: The work is always evolving and changing. That's because the world is always changing, but it's also because new creative ideas are emerging. We try to learn from others, best practices that are out there. We've often also been a pioneer and have articulated new approaches. For instance, the Illinois and Michigan Canal National Heritage Corridor, this kind of partnership park from Chicago down to LaSalle, Peru, over 100 miles that encompasses towns and natural areas and parks and trails, but also industry and brownfields. And it's a living, working landscape, but one that's very significant for the people who live there, and that also tells a very important story about the American experience. That was designated the first National Heritage Corridor by Congress in 1984. There are 49 of these designated heritage areas now, these landscape-scale partnerships around the country.
0: Can I just say, though, that really was a designation that you personally basically invented?
1: Well, I played an important role with lots of partners, definitely, but it was an unusual, at that time, focus where you were looking holistically at a landscape in all of its forms, at the cultural and the natural, from the dawn of time to the present. That's not how most organizations function. Their mission was more narrowly defined on parks or natural areas or on historic buildings or archaeological sites or whatever. This initiative said, no, they're all connected. We need to understand it as a living organism, as a landscape that has changed and will continue to change through time. How do we move it in a positive direction?
0: You were one of the first people that ever said to me when we were talking about natural areas that you would look at some rusted out piece of industry and say, isn't that cool? <laughs> That's so great. Let's make sure we save that. And the idea of saving these industrial artifacts was really a radical idea in the late 1980s.
1: It's true. Yet they're touchstones to our history, our past. When you think of who created these plants, who worked there, what role they played in the culture and economy of these communities? And the lives of
0: so many families were oh, tied up in those, totally, uh, totally. those industries.
1: And often those are the chapters in our history that weren't celebrated labor right. history, average working people, and their lives. We focus so much on celebrities, on political leaders, on the famous and wealthy, and their homes and their sites. The heritage area. Initiative said, no, all of these things collectively tell a very important story and it informs all of us today and hopefully can help us think more creatively about the future as well. Let's not obliterate it, let's build on it and celebrate it.
0: Do you have an overarching philosophy that has guided you?
1: How do you make a difference? What am I doing today that contributes to the well being of the community in which I live, the well being of the world overall? All of my work has always been trying to put the pieces back together and to think more holistically about humans and nature, about place, about the gray and the green infrastructure. Each element has its own significance and collectively tells a story, creates a place, creates a culture, and if you lose any one of them, it's tragic.
0: Well, thanks to you, a lot of us have come to see the world that way. The holistic picture really wasn't in our culture before you began to articulate it and to make it appear before our eyes in projects that happened on the ground.
1: We live in a very specialized world. Things are segmented, fragmented, siloed. I'm not an expert in anything, but I am a generalist in a lot.
0: That is an important part of what I've seen you accomplish over the years, watching you work your magic. You do have these broad interests. They bring you into contact with a lot of different kinds of people. And through those people, you end up creating these networks of people and land and art and history in some ways, it seems to me like you might not have done all the things that you would have done if you had been micro-focused on a single issue.
1: I've had a, a wonderful journey, totally unplanned and not expected. So it's also a serendipity, and it's been marvelous. It's been a deeply rewarding effort to work at Open Lands. There's always a new challenge, a new opportunity, another kind of horizon, if you want.
0: Thank you for all you do.
1: It's been an honor. Thank you.
0: (laughs) This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Jerry Edelman inspires you, like Jerry, to find a new challenge, a new opportunity, another kind of horizon. This is the final episode of Season 2. We hope you've enjoyed it. Look out for us next year at Earth Day when we'll launch Season 3 of The Shape of the World. Until then, have a wonderful journey. The Shape of the World is about nature and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce the story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the Prairie State of Illinois. You can find The Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website shapeoftheworldshow.com. Shape of the World's producer is Ari Mejia, the theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Jerry Edelman, and to Openlands.